Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It's Tuesday, which means it's Draft Deep Dives Day, which means I am here with hashtag basketball draft expert Tyler Metcalf, my co-host. Tyler, how are you doing today? I'm a little stressed and neurotic because Michigan tips off in a couple hours, and I'm just already envisioning losing to an 11 seed uh, instead of going to the Final Four, so that's where I'm at. But other than that, I'm great. Well, we will talk about two Michigan players on this podcast, spoiler alert, so hopefully they don't disappoint you too much tonight. I don't think they will, but, you know, one of them certainly won't. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm keeping spirits high. I'm trying to stay positive. I just, the, the, the teams I tend to root for leave, tend to leave me in poor, bad places, but that's a, another podcast for another day. Yeah, this is a Kings fan and a Timberwolves fan talking, so uh, we have plenty of experience with that between us. It gets dark. It gets real dark, but let's talk about something that's a lot less dark, and last week we talked about some of the prospects in the NCAA tournament, and we did start off with some Michigan tournament-related talk, but this week we're going to discuss the top wings in the upcoming NBA draft, and I wanted to sort of start out by talking about the evolution of the sort of wing positions in the NBA. And part of this, we actually sort of started when we had our discussion about primary initiators and had six foot seven Cade Cunningham as part of that discussion. It seems like, especially in the last two or three years, that a team really kind of needs a big playmaker slash wing kind of lead playmaker to really be a championship contender. And the flip side of that is that players who can defend those positions well are also sort of rising up draft boards and rising up in importance sort of around the NBA. So what are your thoughts sort of on the evolution of the wing position in the NBA? Really, it's been, I think, biggest over the last two, three years, but this has been kind of a decades-long trend. And honestly, even if you look back in NBA history, I mean, Magic and Bird, you know, those were both six, eight primary scorers slash playmakers for their teams. And it's just the general kind of evolution of the game and the um, emphasis on just overall versatility where, you know, when, when we're growing up, we're, we had that traditional point guard, you had the shooting guard running off screens, you had two bigs in the post. Um, you, you just don't see that anymore because if you have players who are just one-dimensional, it's easier and easier to scheme against them where, okay, so you have this guy who's a lights out shooter, but he can't do anything off the dribble. So we're just going to stay tight to him off the ball and deny him anything and force him to put it on the floor. If, you know, you have these guards or wings who can't shoot, then, okay, defensively, we can kind of sag way off them and, essentially play five on four or put our immobile sender on them like the Warriors did with Bogut on Tony Allen. So when you look at these guys coming out of the draft or coming into the draft, it's okay. Does he have that one elite skill? Yes, no. And does he have the potential? Has he shown the flashes that he can build on that and expand from that? Or is he just going to, kind of be that one trick pony and if he really hasn't shown any ability or tendency to do any of those other things that aren't you know 
technically in his job description based on his position or height or whatever, then, you know, it, it, it becomes a lot less tantalizing to take some of those guys. You brought up Tony Allen, and I think he's the perfect exemplar of one side of this issue. And I think the other perfect exemplar of that is Roy Hibbert. And you also sort of talked about, you know, the one trick pony type of players and elite skills. I think really a lot of these draft guys, their ceiling is sort of determined by, you know, what their elite skill is and how good they are at it. But talking about Tony Allen, I think it's really sort of indicative of how, you know, he was one of the best wing slash guard defenders of his era, maybe in the history of the NBA. But that was really all he could do. And so offensively, you could stick Bogut on him and dare Tony Allen to shoot three-pointers. And spoiler alert, Tony Allen wasn't going to beat you that way. And on the flip side, you had Roy Hibbert, who for a few years at his peak was the exemplar of the best way to play center defense. You know, verticality, being really big and being a huge presence around the rim, deterring shots. And... The problem with Hibbert was, you know, he wasn't really giving you all that much on offense. And if you had to play literally anything other than a drop heavy scheme where he was just sort of hanging around the rim, he would get absolutely torched. And, you know, I think that sort of leads well into the discussion of wing players because pretty much all of these players have a couple of things at least that they do really well. And when you're talking about guys who are going to be successful, you know, the archetype is sort of three and D wings, right? Where it's on the offensive side of the ball, you're shooting three pointers on the defensive end. You're guarding players, you know, one to three or two to four, or even two to five in some rare cases, you know, you're doing something on both ends of the floor. Whereas the problem with both Tony Allen and Roy Hibbert is that they were really only effective on one side of the floor. Granted, it's a little bit different from Hibbert because there were ways in which he wasn't effective on defense. Once teams started you know, attacking him in pick and roll. But Tony Allen fell out of the league when he did entirely because he didn't have an offensive skill set. He was still an incredible player on the defensive end of the floor. And specialists are still really important to a rotation. It just drastically lessers, you know, where they function in their rotation. I mean, Kyle Korver and J.J. Redick, you know, they're excellent basketball players. But the main reason they've stuck around so long and had such prolonged careers is because they're absolutely elite shooters. But on the flip side, you can't leave them out there for 35, 40 minutes a night to, you know, constantly run off screens and hit knockdown shots because they're a defensive liability. So when you're looking at these guys and you're trying to build the best roster and envision, you know, who can really hit that ceiling, who can elevate a roster, who can elevate a starting lineup and take us to the playoffs and do multiple things you know those guys who are just singularly focused tend to kind of fall off and and we, we we've even seen it with the bucks these last couple of years where chris middleton has really been the only guy on that team who can create his own shot and it's really stifled their their offensive flow because the playoffs just turn into a different game essentially and defensive schemes become different and how you focus on guys and take away different things completely changes. And if you don't have, you know, at least two, three, you know, however many guys, but you need more than one who can go out there and create their own shot. If you don't have that, then, you know, we, we kind of get what we've seen with Milwaukee the last few years. 
And Milwaukee has Drew Holiday now, which I think really helps with that problem. And we'll see how that goes in the playoffs. But let's move from the NBA talk to the NBA draft talk. And I wanted to start by talking about the two wing type players who are in the top five of this draft. So let's start with Jonathan Kuminga. And he's 6'8", 220-ish, got an NBA-ready body already, great athlete, not, you know, top 5% athlete, but probably top 10% athlete. Really, the concern here is just the shot. I mean, he doesn't do everything else well enough to the point where his shot is going to be a non-factor. And so if he can be an average to slightly below average shooter, I think he's a clear future all-star who might even hit all NBA levels. And I think he'd still be a really good player in the NBA if his shot never gets above 30% from three-point range. But really, as it is with a lot of players, that's going to be the swing skill with Kaminga. The difference there is just that he has a much better skill set in other areas than guys who are going to fall further down the draft board than that top five. Yeah, so just an excellent athlete, really dynamic and aggressive attacking off the dribble. Um, the the way he kind of attacks the rim is, you know, it's kind of Zion-esque where he's not afraid to go through or around or over anyone. Um, obviously a little less impactful because he's, you know, about 80 pounds lighter than Zion. Um, and a pr- really impressive kind of playmaker off the bounce as well with his driving kicks. Uh, he sees the floor pretty well. Um, his shooting struggles remind me a lot of Patrick Williams um, coming out of Florida State, where when he shoots off the dribble, it's it the, the results are better than when he's shooting off the catch. And it just seems like he's more in the flow of the game. It comes more naturally to him when he's pulling up off the dribble. It's still not great, but it's better than when he's trying to shoot off the catch and he's overthinking his mechanics and it becomes very segmented with his release. And it it seems like a, it's a big mental hurdle for him to kind of get over. So if if he can clear that, I, I think he it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up being, you know, a top three player in this class. But if that shot really never develops, if it that comfort, if that fluidity never gets into his form and his mechanics, um, it wouldn't surprise me if a couple of years from now we look back and we're like, really? He went three or four? Like that seems kind of high. But the, the, the ceiling for, out of the top five guys in this draft with Cunningham, Mobley, Green, Suggs, Kaminga, um, Kaminga has one of the highest ceilings. But I also think that he might have the lowest floor out of all five of those guys. It's interesting because I actually think that Jalen Green has the lowest floor of those five guys, and we'll get to him in just a second. But you brought up the shooting off the dribble with Kuminga, and this is more of a philosophical thing, but all of the players that are going to go in the NBA draft period have been the best player on the team for the vast majority of their lives. And so it kind of makes sense to me that Kuminga is more used to shooting the ball off the dribble and is more comfortable shooting the ball off the dribble because, you know, he's had the ball in his hands basically his entire life. And this season with the G League Ignite was the first time that he was not sort of the alpha and the omega of his team. And, you know, there are some exceptions to that, like, you know, the Montverde guys, Cade was the man and everybody else sort of orbited around him. But 
even then, you know, these guys were clearly the best player on their middle school teams and on their AAU teams and all of that. So it does kind of make sense to me that he's more comfortable with shooting off the dribble. But, you know, really the question is whether he can sort of get past that mental hurdle. And I think that's the kind of thing where two, three years in, I would be surprised if he didn't. But as you said, the flip side of that is that if he doesn't ever clear that mental hurdle, he's not going to be looked at in the same light as the rest of the guys in the top five of this incredibly loaded draft class. But speaking of which, let's move on to the other wing in that sort of top five range, Jalen Green. And I said that Kuminga was probably top 10 athletically percentage-wise, but maybe not top 5%. Jalen Green is like top 5%, maybe top 1% athletically. He's scary good scary athlete even by nda standards but the issue i have with him is sort of similar to concerns that i had about andrew wiggins coming out which is just that if you're too much in love with that mid-range shot and that mid-range step back and you know you're too focused on hunting your own shot and not focused enough on all other areas of the basketball court i just think that kuminga has more potential value than green without the ball in his hands you know obviously there's sort of the off-ball shooting that kuminga has struggled with but you know i think his defensive skill set is much better than jalen green's at this point and i think jalen green is much more likely to sort of shoot himself out of being a really good nba player than kuminga is but given his athleticism and what we've seen with the shot creation from jalen green i mean he might have a higher ceiling than anyone in this class besides Cade, and honestly, he might even have a higher ceiling than Cade, all things considered. With Green, the, the Zach Levine comp has been thrown around a lot, and that's the one I kind of tend to go back to uh, quite a bit, where it wouldn't surprise me, where I, I think their levels of athleticism are similar, and that's really saying something because we all know how the the explosiveness that Levine has, but what I really kind of draw am drawn to with that comp is the first few years of Zach Levine's career were not really that pretty. He was super inefficient. He wasn't that good of a shooter, very skinny, could leap out of the gym, but he kept growing. He kept improving. And I, I see a lot of that with Jalen Green. Um, I know his at rim stuff or his at rim stuff actually in the G league was way more impressive than I anticipated it would be. He, despite only being like 180 pounds soaking wet, and he invited contact. He was a he had the body control to finish around guys when needed, but he did a really good job of going into guys, initiating contact, and as he grows and matures and gets stronger, I think I think that mentality and that fearlessness at the rim is really going to benefit him. And then you touched on it too with the shot perimeter shot creation. There was there 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 was a bit too much mid range, but overall I, I generally liked the way that he created for himself on the perimeter and his shot I thought looked pretty solid. Um it it wasn't elite, but it seemed to steadily improve and the space creation was already phenomenal where you know, we, we we don't see that level of space creation from too many guys who are coming into the league as rookies. So I, I think he has the potential to be, you know, a top five scorer in the league at his peak. I, I think his scoring potential 
could be really, really, really special. With the Zach Levine comp, I think one thing that's key to note there is Zach Levine has a reputation as being one of the hardest working players in the NBA. And I don't mean to say that Jalen Green isn't a hard worker, because truth be told, I don't think we'll know what kind of worker he is compared to the average NBA player until we've seen him in the league for a few years. But I mean, Levine has the reputation as being one of those guys that's always in the gym, always working on his game. For sure. And the other big thing with Zach Levine is he came into the league with passing vision that might make Josh Christopher jealous, right? He never passed the ball. And the biggest development for him was Minnesota threw him out there at point guard a lot of the time and just sort of said, figure it out. And, you know, that led to him being, you know, he's never going to be one of the best passers in the NBA, but he's making passes now in Chicago that he would never have seen even in Minnesota. And that, I think, will also be a big question with Jalen Green is, you know, can he add more of a playmaking slash making shots for other players element to his game? Because that's, I think, one of the biggest things with Levine, along with that highly touted work ethic. And I, I'm not sure Green hits that level. And I, I think a, that that big change in Levine's game, I think, really came from him wanting to be that lead initiator, that main guy, the star of the Bulls. And so he knew that that aspect of his game had to improve. So it's something he continued to work on. And you're, you're 100% right with Levine's work ethic. Um, I, I, you know, that's something I hope Jalen Green has, because if he does, we're going to see an incredibly special player in a couple of years. I'm not sure Green ever hits that level of playmaking. And, you know, in the their last few G League games, he had the ball in his hands a ton. He didn't do much, you know, high-level playmaking. But, I mean, Kamingo was out those last couple of games, and Green was kind of out there just to go score, to be that primary scorer. And I, I think he really embraced that role. So, a few years from now, hopefully, Green has a little more passing vision, but it's never going to be like a big aspect where I expect him to be the primary initiator in an offense, and but instead a really dynamic secondary, if he can become a good secondary creator off the move and improve just like his driving kick or driving dunk to the dunker spot, just stuff like that, because he will have immense scoring gravity and once he gets into the lane if he can improve just fine kicking to that open corner shooter instead of trying to finish through or over three defenders who are collapsing on him that simple not simple but that kind of rudimentary skill would would elevate his offensive impact tenfold speaking of scoring james booknight who really struggled in both the conference tournament and the NCAA tournament, it's very easy to envision him as a 20-point-per-game scorer in the NBA, especially since there are a lot more 20-point-per-game scorers in the NBA than there were even two years ago. The question for me is, what else does he do? I'm not sure. I think he's a solid defender. Um, I He's not going to wow anyone with his on-ball defense his lateral quickness isn't good enough where he can be you know your best perimeter defender but he competes hard at that end and is generally in the right spot um he just kind of needs to put a consistent run together and really improve his footwork on the perimeter um 
I mean, other than that, I, I, I love his off-ball movement. I think he's the best uh, prospect in the country right now at running off screens and kind of creating space without the ball for his own shot. The outside shooting really wasn't didn't end up where you know we kind of wanted it to, but I, I, I struggle with Booknight because early in the season, he was incredible. And then he had the injury on his, you know, his his non-dominant shooting elbow, and came back and was solid. But as the year kind of came to an end, he he just tailed off uh, a lot, and I, I worry about the slowness of his shooting release and whether or not he can be reliable enough as a shooter to be a legitimate scoring option that's you know worthy of a high lottery pick well someone who certainly did not tail off as the season came to a close moses moody who has been really impressive for arkansas in tournament play but was really sort of starting to showcase his skill set before the tournament as well you know sort of in the games leading up to it he has everything really that you could want out of a 3 and D wing. And I think he has one of the highest floors in this draft. I don't really see, barring injury, a world in which he's not an effective NBA player. But, you know, sort of the reverse of Jalen Green here, the question is, what is the ceiling with Moody? Because he's shown that, you know, he can be a really effective player. But I'm curious as to how good he can get in terms of you know, sort of the secondary skills besides his defense and his three-point shooting. Yeah, I, I really wish he would have been able to find his shot against Baylor last night. I, I think that would have that that could have changed the game for them. Uh, unfortunately, he couldn't. But he's still one of the the smoothest, most natural shooters in this class. Uh, I I get a lot of Mikael Bridges vibes from Moody with his length, his off-ball shooting just the fluidity and smoothness of his movements. He's a really good defender. I I would I, I would like to see him do a little more off the dribble and I think that will eventually come in his game because he's incredibly gifted at getting to the line. Um he does a great job of attacking closeouts and baiting guys into shot fakes in the mid range and stepping through and just creating enough space he's not creating a ton of space like Jalen Green or Cam Thomas or Trey Mann do but he's creating enough space where he can use his length to step around a guy and hit a fader or you know just fade away and shoot an inch over a shot contest so he, he's just really smart and creative and natural in that part of his game I, I've been tempted to move him into that you know that that next tier with Kaminga, but I I just haven't seen enough of him doing stuff off the bounce, whether it's playmaking or creating his own shot, where he he can really elevate into that that one of those elite tiers. So I wanted to talk about Corey Kispert next, who's a very similar player to Moody in terms of being an exceptional three point shooter. He's Solid defensively, I wouldn't say he's great defensively, but I mean, really, with his shooting touch, all he needs is to be good enough to be playable, and he's certainly that. But Kispert might have an even lower ceiling than Moody, and you know, if you're talking about Kispert going in the top ten, 
I think it really depends on what team is picking at, you know, 8, 9, or 10, which is probably the range Kispert would go if he does go in the top 10. You know, if it's a team that has a star player already and Kispert's just playing around him, I think that could end up working great for him. But if it's a team that drafts Corey Kispert number seven overall and expects him to be their star player, I don't think that's going to work out too well for them. So, so, and at the base level, Kispert is the best shooter in this draft. And he, he can shoot off the catch, off the bounce, on the move, off screens, relocating. Uh, however you want him to shoot, he's going to shoot and make it at a high clip. I, I think he's a really smart defender. I, I think his... I think he gets knocked too much for his athleticism. I, th- I think he's relatively a solid athlete. He's a really smart passer, not a great playmaker, but moves the ball well. We'll find cutters or the open shooter. He, he he just has a great feel for the game, and it comes naturally to him. And his size at 6'7", 220, I, I feel like a lot of people undersell that. It's, he's a big dude, and that will make up for a lot of you know, maybe athletic shortcomings on the defensive end. But with his age, you know, it's he's a senior, so there probably isn't a whole lot more to grow in his game. With that said, though, if you or if, if New Orleans ends up missing out on the playoffs and they're at the back end of that lottery, I would absolutely love to see him as an option, you know, off of Zion driving kicks or post-up kickouts um and that that point you made where if if you put him in a roster with an already established star that he can work off of and play with and elevate their game to that that will be his best landing spot if there's a team in the lottery who is envisioning oh this is going to be our guy this is going to be our star they're going to be really disappointed because he i don't think he has the, the the ability to really take over an offense but he has the ability to elevate an offense from good to great. So we talked about Zaire Williams out of Stanford a bit on the last pod, as well as on the top 45 draft pod. Really, he just had the worst year imaginable, both from an on-the-court perspective and from an off-the-court perspective. He's someone who's falling down draft boards because of his relatively poor play at Stanford, but I think he could be someone who falls a little farther than he should and ends up being someone that teams really regret passing on. But unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to see him or Stanford play in the tournament. However, two players that we did get to see play in the NCAA tournament, Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer out of Tennessee. And we already talked on the last pod about the, um, let's just say, questionable coaching from Rick Barnes, a continuing trend there. But with both Springer and Johnson, they're great athletes. They have really high defensive upside, but Keon just needs to be able to shoot from range. That's really what it's going to be for him. And Springer really needs to improve his decision-making, especially since at 6'4", he's sort of on the smaller side of wing prospects. So kind of like we talked about earlier, where I I fully expect Keon Johnson to be a great defender in the NBA. I just don't know what he really does offensively, because I don't trust that that shot is going to come along. I love his athleticism. I love his mentality when he plays. Just that, that outside shooting 
I I really worry about it. And if that doesn't come along, I I think it's going to really really limit and lower, you know, what type of player he could be. Uh, Jaden Springer's a really weird prospect. He's kind of like an old school shooting guard, where instead of finesse step backs and euro steps and stuff he's he's more of a physical player where he's gonna bully you to get to his spot and get to the rim um i i think his general shooting mechanics look solid just the outside results and consistency weren't really there a little more impressive playmaking from him would, would also be wonderful to see now let's talk about josh christopher and Man, I mean, he has some of the best tools in his class, but he also shot his team out of games more than almost any other prospect that's likely to go in the first round. I mean, he is problematically in love with his shot. Like, you know, you get six-man types like Lou Williams and Jordan Clarkson who try and shoot pretty much every time the ball gets into those into their hands. But even those guys have been effective as playmakers, Lou more than Jordan Clarkson. But Josh Christopher doesn't even have Jordan Clarkson levels of passing awareness. And, you know, we mentioned earlier that Zach Levine was sort of similar to Josh Christopher in terms of complete lack of passing vision early in his career. And I guess that's a good sign for what Christopher could be. But when he gets to an NBA team, I mean, there are going to be better players around him, as there always are when you go from the college game to the NBA. And if people were fed up with how much he shot the ball at Arizona State, they're going to be really fed up with how much he shoots the ball in his first NBA season, unless he can tone that down a bit, at which point I think he's a much better prospect. And he's, you know, one of the biggest black holes on this roster when it comes, you know, in terms of shot selection there isn't a shot that he's ever disliked um the the problem with that is that he's not very good at shooting and he was in the 29th percentile this season when shooting off the dribble the 34th percentile shooting off the catch and those just aren't good numbers and they're not good enough given the volume that he was regularly shooting at i know he kind of struggled with some injuries and stuff as the season wound down and I, I wish we would have gotten more time with him healthy on the court with Bagley. Um, but unfortunately we just didn't get it. And if he's not going to be shooting at an efficient level, he's not much of a passer either. So I, I worry that if you're not shooting well and you're not moving the ball, NBA coaches are going to be hesitant to play you because they're not going to see you bringing much value to the roster. So Maybe in workouts or in interviews, he impresses a little more. He's able to shine a little more, show that he can do a little more than he did at Arizona State. But it it, it was an underwhelming year from him. All right. The moment you've been waiting for all podcast. Tell the world about the wonders of Franz Wagner. He's just a joy to watch out there. And his understanding for the game is really impressive he added a bunch of muscle this year and you you can tell in how how it's affected his play he's a better defender he's a better slasher he's a really smart playmaker off the dribble uh not not like an elite playmaker or primary initiator but his driving dumps his he can kick out he's a really accurate passer um it's just been a lot of fun to watch him this year and he's also like he's a sophomore but he's still one of the youngest guys in this class um 
as he's just, I think he's still 19. It's pretty incredible, the jump that he's made. Uh, the outside shot still isn't quite where, you know, you want it to be, but his one-two dribble pull-up is pretty good. Um, and just the his overall understanding of team defense and gap coverage and rotations and his perimeter footwork is, you know, some of the best in the country. The fact that the Big Ten media didn't vote for him as an all-defensive Big Ten player is ludicrous and, you know, just another example of how bad college media voting is. But he he's really, I think he's absolutely secured himself as a lottery guy. I've seen some people flirting with him at top five. I think that's well, way too aggressive. Yeah, that's pushing it. But I mean, I, I, I currently have him moved up to eight. I think in that eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve zone is really where you want him is incredible value for someone like him who does a little bit of everything his shooting mechanics are good so if as he continues to develop if that shooting takes a jump he he could be just an absolute steal and well you know one of the most dynamic two-way players in this draft all right so now we've talked about the first round sort of wings so let's move into the draft deep dive section so these are a few guys who are not on your first round board, and let's start out with the moment that you've been waiting for the second most throughout the course of this podcast, where you get to talk about Isaiah Livers, who is a really great shooter with size, who unfortunately got injured right before the tournament, which I'm sure just made you so happy as a Michigan fan, but he's someone else who really fits into the sort of big wing who can shoot archetype, and He's likely to go in the second round, especially after that injury, and he could be one of those guys who you look up in five years or so, and he's established himself as a rotation player, and people wonder why they let his injury and him missing Michigan's tournament run let him fall so far. It, it was such a bummer when that injury got announced, because he's struggled with injuries the last couple of years, and, you know, finally, we, you know, he got through a season unscathed. Not quite. Um the, the, I think the most important thing that Livers has shown this year, because he's always been a solid shooter, he's always been a versatile defender, but this year he showed a better understanding of how to create and move the ball off the dribble. He was better at attacking the rim, he was better at creating for his teammates off the bounce, and he's never going to be a high-level playmaker, but he's an excellent ball mover the ball never stops with him. He's not a black hole. He's not going to take bad, bad shots. But, you know, he kind of is what he He's one of these guys where he is what he is. And he's a two-way wing who's going to do all the dirty work. He'll switch on anyone on defense. He'll knock down open shots. And he'll move the ball to the open guy. So, as a, you know, a, a second-round guy, I, I, I don't know what else. I don't think you can ask for much more. Up next, an old favorite of both of ours who we've discussed a number of times already, but we will continue to discuss because, again, he is an old favorite of both of ours, Scotty Lewis. And with Scotty Lewis, you know, the defensive skill set is clearly there. 
And I think if he goes to a playoff team that's going to play him 15 minutes a night and say, you're going to guard the best player on the other team for those 15 minutes and then just try and score off cuts on the offensive end and not try and do all that much else, I think he could be a real steal, especially if said playoff team can help him figure out his shot. But if he ends up on a bad team, I think that's just going to be a opportunity for disaster. But it doesn't matter how bad the team he ends up on is. I still believe, I still believe, even if he ends up on the Kings, he's going to find a way to be a successful defensive player, at least. He's so much fun to watch defensively, but I just can't think of a shot, of a, an outside shot that he's ever taken. And I've been like, that's 100% going in. I just have no faith in his jumper, and it, it breaks my heart because I love this kid. I love how he plays. He plays so incredibly hard. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. If a good team with you know a, a, an established rotation already brings him in and is like, hey, go be an absolute defensive terrorist out there for five minutes, I, th- then I think he could be an awesome pickup in the second round. I kind of hope that he gets used in like a similar way that uh, Terrence Mann has been, at least at the start of this year, as just like that utility guy off the bench who just brings a ton of energy, will do whatever you want him to do. It's ju- it's just the shot with him. I-, I don't think it's ever going to really come around, and that's such a bummer. Let's just have him go to San Antonio, lock him in a gym with Chip Englund for three months, and have him emerge as a four-time All-Star. I'm all for it. All right, up next, Marcus Bagley, who... He suffered, I think, more than almost anyone else from the Josh Christopher experience, but he's someone who has good athletic tools. I mean, not quite at his brother's level athletically, but still a really, really good athlete who can shoot, who's a standstill shooter. And I don't know. I mean, I think that he's better than a late second round prospect. I would be wary of taking him in the first round just because I don't think we've seen enough from him, given that he didn't get that many opportunities at Arizona State. But I wouldn't be surprised or upset, really, if a team took him towards the end of the first round, because I really think he does have that kind of upside. We just didn't get to see as much of it as we might have otherwise had Christopher not shot the ball every time it came within like 10 feet of him. I'm really taking shots at Christopher on this podcast, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, RIP Josh Christopher, Jesus. Um, I, I Bagley really feels like one of these guys where he's going to get drafted I probably right around the, t- the turn of the first and second round. Um, and we're not going to hear it from him again for two or three years unless he carves out a route and then it wouldn't surprise me if he carved out a rotation role. He's going to be a project because besides standstill shooting and athleticism, there really isn't much he does. He, he doesn't shoot on the move at all. He doesn't shoot off the bounce. He doesn't play make. He's an inconsistent defender. He struggled to stay healthy this season. So the shooting upside is there. You know, you, you, you always like to think that, okay, this guy's a good standstill shooter. Now we just have to have him practice shooting on the move and shooting off the bounce. And that'll come, you know, easier said than done. But he, he's going to be a project. The There are tools and a somewhat foundation there to, to build on. So it could be interesting a few years from now. But right away, I'd be stunned if he really makes much of an impact. 
up next, Derek Austin Jr. out of Boise State, who is another one of these guys, spoiler alert, who is a potential 3 and D wing. He is one of the ugliest, I don't want to say ugly, the slowest shots, but his length and release point it makes it, you know, nearly impossible for defenders to contest. A really good shooter, and we talked about work ethic earlier. He's right up there. He has, you know, a, a great story of coming, come, working his butt off from almost a nothing recruit to being the best player at Boise State and a p- potential second round pick. So I, I really like his shooting. I really like his length. He needs to bulk up some, but th- th- there are definitely tools there that you see in his game that you 100% see in NBA guys. Up next, Trey Murphy the third, who is a massive wing out of Virginia, like six nine shooting guard type, and you know because of that and his decent shooting, I think that alone is enough to think that he can turn into a really solid rotation player. You know, again, it's sort of the theme of this particular podcast that if you're a wing who can shoot and has potential on the defensive end, you're going to be a valuable NBA player as long as you can do those things consistently. Murphy's an excellent catch-and-shoot guy, uh, but be- besides that, he's one of the most impressive cutters I've seen this year. He moves really well without the ball, and he's an excellent athlete, so so w- w- when he does make that backdoor cut, he's he's more than happy to, to slam it on whatever poor soul is rotating from the weak side, which... You know, it is really good to see because standstill shooters are kind of easy to guard. But when you make turn them into excellent athletes who move well without the ball, that you know a whole new dynamic arises. And he he's just an excellent versatile defender. He he's really one of the better examples of you know just the pure three and D wings in this class. And finally, before we wrap up, let's talk about Kessler Edwards out of Pepperdine. He's another sort of big wing type, and he's always been able to shoot from three-point range, but the part of his game that's really impressed me the last couple of years, and this year in particular, is that he's really improved his game inside the arc. I mean, he's basically taken around four three-pointers a game sort of every season of his college career. The difference is just that he's gotten much more efficient and proficient inside the arc, you know, in terms of getting to the rim or shooting pull-ups. I mean, it sort of seemed like he has always had that shot, but I think what will really sort of be a determining factor in how far he can go in the NBA is the fact that he's not just a pure 3 and D wing type at this point. You know, he has gotten much better at scoring in ways outside of shooting from beyond the arc. And his catch-and-shoot numbers are really impressive, 73rd percentile. Around the basket, he's in the 89th percentile. Uh, and that that kind of change in his game is really, you know, prominent with his, his post-up game. And he's in the 93rd percentile in points per possession there. It's He kind of has a funky shot, but he's, he's going to be a really good off-ball shooter. And just the way he's kind of trans transformed and evolved his game to be a really good post-up player because he will have some mismatches with his size and length um it it is just kind of a fun wrinkle to his offensive game i I worry about his ability to kind of shoot off the dribble consistently he was only in the 20th percentile there and he just doesn't really have like that that raw athleticism to be a great space creator but as 
that off-ball shooter, he could be a tremendous weapon. And he's one of the best overall team defenders in this class. His off-ball defense is super impressive. I, I, you know, I don't want to say it's Devin Vassell-esque, but it's, you know, a level below that where he, he can kind of navigate and cover that whole weak side um, on his own with his positioning, his length, his rotations. It's all timely. It's on point. It, it's just a really impressive and important aspect to his game. You mentioned the post-up game as well, and I wanted to go back to that briefly. I think the biggest difference between, you know, a 6-3 kind of wing and a 6-8 kind of wing is, in theory, the 6-8 guy can, you know, post up smaller guys and punish teams for sort of sticking their worst defender on him, you know, like sticking, say, not to call anybody out, but sticking a Kemba Walker or a Trey Young on him. You know, he can eat those guys alive in the post, in theory, whereas, you know, a smaller wing who doesn't have that kind of post-up game is just a lot easier to defend because, you know, you can throw basically your worst defender on that guy and say, yeah, just stick to him beyond the three-point line and he's not going to do anything else. With Kessler Edwards, you're not going to have anywhere near as much of that problem just because he isn't just a pure long-range shooter. And from that those post-ups, he has really good passing vision and willingness out of that. So and he's not going to be, you know, dropping dimes like Jokic or Cat. But, you know, if, if the defense goes to double him when that smaller guard does switch over, he, he's more than capable of finding the cutter or making that skip pass to the opposite corner. All right. Anything else you want to go over here before we wrap up? Uh, just going to plug. Yes, plug away. Uh, should have in-depth Kate Cunningham scouting report coming out soon uh submitted that today it's like almost 3,000 words so sorry in advance for that but it's good stuff read it fun clips um more of those will be coming out all the way up to the draft uh I'll have something Timberwolves related coming out in a week or so um and second weekend tournament recap coming out tomorrow so keep it tomorrow as in wednesday uh so keep an eye out for that that's it all right well he is tyler metcalf you can find him on twitter at t metcalf one one you can find his work on hashtag basketball definitely take a look for that Cade review i will certainly be reading that as soon as i see that come through you can find me on twitter at n-b-a-j-o-h-n-s-o-n and both Tyler and I are continuing to contribute to the hashtag basketball weekly power rankings. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback on the show, please feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email. My email is in my Twitter bio. And as always, thanks so much for listening.